This is Tax Chats. Hello, I'm Scott Dyring. And I am Jeff Hoops. And we're here to chat about taxes. Hello again, and welcome to another edition of Tax Chats. I'm Scott Dyring, professor of accounting at Duke University, and I am joined, as always, by the Tax Museum curator and professor of accounting at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, Jeffrey L. Hoops. Hello. What's going on over there today? Not a whole lot. Just doing doing the good work of Tax Museum curating and, and anything else. That... Anything exciting and new coming into the Tax Museum? Every day. Too much to talk about. Too much to talk about. Spend hours uh, about it. I believe not too long ago on an episode, you promised me you were going to buy a Twix bar to put in the tax museum. I haven't bought it yet. We're trying to build up the budget. We're looking for donations to be able to afford Need donations. Somebody send Jeff the dollar fifty it takes to buy a Twix bar so he can put it in the tax museum to demonstrate that Twix is food, not candy, for tax purposes in North Carolina. Sales tax, yeah. But that's neither here nor there. Today we're going to talk about something else. Jeff, what are we going to talk about? So we are talking about, we're on the cusp of an amazing anniversary. December 22nd is going to be the five-year anniversary of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act being signed. It's signed back in uh, December 2017. So we're going to talk a little bit about the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. And here to talk with the t- talk about the TCGA with us is Kyle Pomerlo. Uh, Kyle, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, hi. Yeah, I'm Kyle Pomerlow. I'm a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Um, Prior to that, I was a senior economist, head of the federal team over at the Tax Foundation uh, here in Washington, D.C. Okay, so that seems like a good place to be to have had like a front row seat to uh, see the TCGA being passed. So you could just like set the stage for us. What what was like the tax environment that led up to the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act being uh, debated and then passed? Yeah, pr- prior to the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, um, the the at the federal level, there hadn't been tax reform since 1986. And you know, full disclosure, that's also before I was born. Um, so it had been a very long I, time. I was three. Well, I was old. I was, uh, I think I was seven. Okay. So th- this is a relatively young crew. Some people tell me that they were there and they were adults and they were we've, part we've of We've interviewed people who were part of that reform. As there's some good episodes on yeah. uh, the TRA 86. Yeah. Yep. Um, it, and from 1986 until tw- 2017, there really hadn't been any tax reform. There had been some small tax changes. There had been some big tax changes, but those were mostly just tax increases or tax cuts or changes around the margin. There really hadn't been any reform. And then the decade prior to the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, I think there was a lot of debate in Washington, D.C. that something needed to be done, um, especially with the corporate tax code in the United States. So prior to the TCJ's passage, the United States had one of the highest or the highest corporate income tax rates in the developed world. Um, And this, I think, a lot of people believe put the U.S. economy at a competitive disadvantage. It also created a lot of perverse incentives for U.S. multinationals to shift profits overseas. Um, And then we also had a pretty old and out-of-date international system that... uh, that didn't tax foreign profits until those profits were repatriated. That 
also created an incentive to keep profits overseas after you would earn them overseas. Um, so lawmakers had been working over the, la the that decade on ideas on how to address that. At the same time, lawmakers also said, well, we can't just do corporate-only reform. There has to be some sort of individual component. Um, so part of the debate was also how can we reduce statutory tax rates, broaden the individual income tax base in order to reform that side of the code too. So why did that? Why did the two have to go together? Is it like a political issue that you just have to get the votes by? Yeah, there, there was a political issue and also an economic issue um, at the time. So politically, you know, it's hard to vote for something that provides a very large tax cut for these large corporations while not providing anything for individuals. And then a second component of this, which is also maybe an economic component, is that if you're going to do business tax reform broadly, you can't just do the corporate code because a large portion of U.S. businesses uh, are paying taxes through the individual income tax. These are called pass-through businesses. Um, they're S-corporations, sole proprietorships, partnerships. They don't pay the corporate income tax, they're paying the individual income tax. And they're an important um, political constituency as well. And if you're pointing to just doing corporate reform, they'll raise their hand and say, hey, what about us? We do business in the United States. We think you know, high tax rates are bad too. Um, you got to address the individual code. So it seems like if you want to go back you know, 10 years before this happened, so let's just say 2017 all the way back to 2007. So this is like the Obama administration kind of prior to the Trump administration. 2007 was Bush. That's true. 2008, Obama started. All right. Thank you for the correction. Come on, um, Scott. <laughs> uh, no one ever accused me of being uh, up to speed on my uh, political knowledge. Uh, so um, my recollection from those years and teaching during those years, uh, the Obama administration years, is they were also saying, this wasn't just a Trump thing. They were also saying, we need to change the corporate code it's got this problem. And in all the same ways. I mean, it wasn't even, they wanted to lower the rate. They wanted to change the international. It wasn't that they were even different changes. So the corporate stuff was fairly similar, if I recall. But what I think might have been different was the individual side. Do you remember how that was working? It seemed like they wanted like higher rates on individuals and the Trump administration wanted lower rates or something. Do you remember? There was a bipartisan consensus on a rough framework on corporate reform where the there was agreement that the statutory rate was too high, the the tax treatment of foreign profits needed to be reformed, um, but there were small differences there. We can get into those, but I think on the individual side was where the biggest differences were, where Republicans at that time wanted to extend the Bush tax cuts, reduce statutory tax rates further. Well, the Democrats wanted to make the tax code more progressive and raise raise tax rates, also limiting itemized deductions specifically for high income households. Um, so there there were differences there that I don't think the parties could necessarily come together on, and that's why things really didn't get anywhere. So why did it why did it take ten years? I mean, why didn't they make these changes, for example, when the Democrats were in control under President Obama. For one, they, at that point, were focused a lot more on health care. Um, the ACA was an important legislative priority for the Obama administration in the early years. And I think, you know, I 
you know, my recollection of this is that they spent a tremendous amount of political capital on this piece of legislation and they really didn't have much left. Um, and then once the Democrats lost Congress, you know, there were really wasn't much more that they could do as, as the Democratic Party to change the tax code. I see. So, um, all right. So now that's the stage. That was like the background. You know, there was this sort of bipartisan consensus. We should change the corporate tax code. But the individual tax piece was complicated. And again, just to emphasize a bipartisan consensus to change it, but change kind of similar things like the Democrats, too, wanted to decrease the corporate tax rate. The Democrats, too, wanted to reform the international tax code in, in somewhat similar ways. So it's not that they even had a different direction that they wanted to go. Magnitudes might have been different, but same same direction. Yeah, and the Obama administration, they put out their plans year after year for corporate reform. At the same time, you had then-chairman of the Ways and Means Committee, Dave Camp, that put forth a tax reform proposal in 2013-2014 that had significant reforms to the corporate tax code. So all of that stuff was out there. Um, And there was a broad consensus on the direction of these things. I think the details are where people started to... Um, disagree. Um, The Obama administration, for example, put forth actually something that looks very much like guilty. Um, And for the longest time, the Republicans were not interested in such such an approach. Um, uh, And then Dave Camp, he put forth um, you know, the famous option C, which also looked very much like guilty. And that was controversial at the time. Um, so there was, so there, there were ideas out there and the ideas kind of pointed in the same direction, but I don't think the politics were just right at that point. And then can you, um, okay. So then, then the Trump administration begins and they have control of the house of Congress. And, um, it seems like early in the year in 2017, a proposal was, promulgated that I believe was a, was a destination based cash flow tax, if I remember right. And it, I, I remember having a, a guy who was a current corporate tax director of VF corporation come and speak to my class while that was on the table. And he was like going crazy because he thought this was such a terrible idea Again, to be clear, VF Corporation that basically just imports a lot of stuff from overseas to sell in the United States. Yeah. Can you, do you remember much about that proposal? Yes. So this proposal was released in June of 2016, actually. And it was part of the Better Way proposal put forth by Paul Ryan and Kevin Brady. So this was a House Republican leadership tax plan. And if you think back all the way you know, all the way in the distant past of May of 2016, the politics looked a lot different. At that point, most people thought that Hillary Clinton was going to become president and that Democrats would be shaping policy and that the Better Way proposal was supposed to be some sort of distant, um, ideal tax reform that Paul Ryan was going to put out there and that this would be the end goal in that we would negotiate that you know, the Republicans, Paul Ryan would say, we would negotiate for for pieces of this. Um, at, but that, of course, didn't happen. Trump ultimately won, and then that Better Way proposal became a, almost a centerpiece of the debate for a couple months. And you know, Scott, you're right. 
the most controversial component of this was replacing the corporate income tax with what is known as a destination-based cash flow tax. Um, and for those not familiar with this tax, how this tax would work is that it would be an entity level tax like the corporate income tax, but instead of taxing profits, it'd be taxing corporate cash flows. So companies would take their revenues, they would subtract out all of their inputs immediately. So the biggest change there would be, uh, well, the biggest two changes there would be that you would get a full deduction for capital costs, you'd get expensing for all capital costs. And the second big change is you'd get no deduction for net interest expense. And in that way, it would look very much like a value-added tax, but with a deduction for labor inputs. And then another component of this ca cash flow tax is that it was destination-based, and that it would, it would apply to all imports brought into the United States. So companies that purchased over, from overseas would not get a deduction anymore. That's why VF Corp was so uh, so nervous about this, I think. And, well, they also called it a border adjustment tax or a bet. Yeah. Uh, and we can get into the, the the debate over that. And then the, then exports they were they were exempt. So if you produced something in the United States, sold it overseas, the re the revenues from that sale would not be included in taxable income. And the end goal of this was to produce a tax a a tax that was more conducive to domestic investment. That's where the expensing comes from eliminated one of the biggest problems of the corporate income tax, which is the debt equity bias. That's where the elimination of the interest deduction comes in. And then also eliminate all incentives for profit shifting. And that's where the border adjustment came in. You can't use cross-border transactions to shift your profits overseas if you don't get deductions or recognize revenue for cross-border uh, transactions. So in, in much a way, it would look very much like a value-added tax in the United States, and it wouldn't suffer from the same problems that a traditional sourced-based corporate income tax would have. And politically, what this was meant to address was the debate over how to structure the tax treatment of foreign profits. The border adjustment was the replacement of taxing foreign profits and having, say, a minimum tax on foreign profits or having to go down this pillar two path um, to reduce the pressures of tax competition. With a border adjustment, you don't have that issue. I see. But it, but it so failed. It, it, it was it a failed. failure. And I remember people predicting like these really perverse outcomes that might happen like a big exporter like Boeing would be tempted to merge with a big importer like VF and suddenly be, because the importer would need tax deductions and the exporter would have too many tax deductions and suddenly Boeing and VF corporation would like combine to so like, airplanes and jackets airplanes and, and and you know north face clothing or something like that it would be kind of kind of crazy um, but it died yeah one of the challenges was that um there are many ways you could have implemented one of these taxes, and I, th I don't think those details. There wasn't enough time to really discuss how this could be put together. You could have ad addressed some of these issues of not having enough taxable income, for example, to get rebates on exports by allowing you know tax tax liability to go negative, or uh, or something like that. Um, I think one of the yeah reasons this ended up dying is because it just 
didn't have there wasn't enough time to talk about that stuff. So and just I think quickly, I think you you mentioned this earlier, it sort of was similar to a value added tax. And I felt like as soon as people started latching onto that term, oh, it's just a hidden value added tax, it sort of died very quickly. And I don't know if that's because in America we hate value added taxes so much or or what it was, but that seemed to have something to do with it. Yeah, the, the, I mean, a lot of the controversy um, was over how importers would fare under such a tax because they would no longer get deductions for purchases overseas. And there was a lot of doom and gloom. There was a lot of, well, this is like a trade barrier. It's going to kill my business. And the, the proper response to that is you wouldn't be saying this if we said we were going to replace the corporate tax with a VAT or replace the corporate tax with a sales tax. And that's exactly what it is. That didn't really work. And also, that's, I think, what Paul Ryan and Kevin Brady were trying to avoid because they knew that ultimately what Republicans want is a consumption-based tax in the United States, but they don't want to call it VAT. They don't want to say VAT because it's politically toxic. Yeah. Okay. So that, that thing died for a variety of reasons, including the politically toxic VAT phrase. And so it died in the summer. And then what happened? Yep. And then from there, I think there was a scramble to figure out what tax reform would look like. And I, I think that, you know, to their credit, people on the Hill already had backup plans. They already knew that this may not necessarily work and that they are going to need to fill effectively a $1 trillion gap in the plan because the border adjustment raised about a trillion dollars or a little bit more because the United States runs a trade deficit. We import more than we export. And then, and also, they need to pull something off the shelf uh, for reforming for the tax treatment of foreign profits. The border adjustment was the answer in the better way. Well, what was going to replace that? Um, so from there, you had both your House and your Senate proposals for the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. And they weren't all that different. They had some differences, um, but they were pretty pretty darn close to what we ultimately see um, in, or what was ultimately signed in December of 2017. Now, now, when this was all happening, now Scott and I knew each other at this time. We would talk about it. It was all very exciting. But it was like happening there, and we were here, and we were just outside observers. Did you feel the same way, but just sitting geographically closer? Or did you actually have some role as these discussions were happening and as plans were getting passed around? Um, so I, I was kind, I kind of stepped back um, during that time um, for medical reasons, but I, so I was in a role that was very similar to yours in that we, I was observing it. But I think prior to that, which was up to like October of 2017, you know, a lot of what I was doing, um, so that the so a little background, the Tax Foundation, they do a lot of what is called dynamic scoring. Um, so dynamic scoring is where is a practice in which you score proposals or, or try to estimate how much revenue they're going to increase or, or, or how much revenue they'll raise or lose for the federal government while also taking into account changes in the economy. So if you, say, increase the top statutory tax rate, that's going to raise a certain amount of revenue. But if you expect that to reduce incentives to work, save, and invest, that could mean that it raises a little bit less revenue than you initially suspected. And the Tax Foundation does a lot of that. And a lot of my work during that period was scoring many of these different 
iterations of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act to see what their effects would be on federal revenue or what their effects would be on economic output, um, because that was very important to the debate in the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. And in a way where some of these um, some of these decisions came from for the uh, for the po- the ultimate policy. For example, there was a deal to cut ta- taxes in the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act by 1.5 trillion dollars over a decade, and that number may seem very random, but where that number came from was that lawmakers wanted to start with first what they consider a current policy baseline. They were suspecting that there was all, there were all these extenders that cost the government about $500 billion, and they thought that those extenders would always exist um, and that they were, in a way, getting rid of them. So they were going to raise $500 billion by not extending those temporary provisions. And then the other trillion dollars is what Republicans thought they could get as a dynamic score from the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. So they wanted to be able to make the case that although the tax cut was $1.5 trillion on a static basis or a conventional basis, after dynamic scoring, it was revenue neutral. So that, that's where that number came from. Which, which assumes a, an extremely large behavioral effect, right? Like way larger than a lot of people would be comfortable with. Yeah, so a, tri- a, a trillion dollar revenue, um, uh, dynamic revenue effect is a large effect. Now, I think that that number is, you could plausibly get to that number in the tax foundations model. Now, the tax foundations model, I think, produces larger responses than some of the other models out there, like the joint committees model. And I think that's where that's where the Republicans were getting some of this, is that a very, very aggressive ta- tax reform proposal could potentially get you a trillion dollars in that type of model. Um, but the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, I don't think that particular bill was going to get you $1 trillion of revenue feedback from economic growth. So it so uh, it passed. We got the TCGA passed. Uh, it had a couple different points, which we talked about. We cut this corporate rate. We reformed international provisions to kind of carry on with what we're already talking about. Did we actually, what do you think the effects of that were? Did we see a lot less revenue, some less revenue? What What do you think happened to the economy or can we even know? What were the effects of the TCGA? I don't like saying anything definitive here because I don't know if we're actually going to know if with any, with any accuracy. So for a couple reasons. One, macro data is really, really challenging to tease through to figure out you know, what happened. Um, I think you can probably do some good research on some small behavioral effects of corporations um, here and there, but I think on a macro scale, it's much harder to to write a convincing paper that the that the TCGA did you know this made the economy grow by X amount or didn't do anything at all. And one reason for that is that you really can't. You really can't isolate the effects of just that tax law. You can't just say, all right, here's the U.S. economy with the TCJ, and here in this laboratory is the U.S. economy without the TCJ. Everything else is the same, and then run that experiment. So you don't really have any natural experiment. So you can't say that much um, about its macro effects. Uh, the biggest problem, for example, is that after the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act was passed, Trump decided to launch, you know, 
a bit of a trade war. And that also has macroeconomic implications that work often in, in the opposite direction. So it's, it's hard to, to isolate those things. So, so here's a bit of a philosophical question for you then. So you're saying it's very hard to know ex post what the actual effect was. So revenue scorers, like you said you did for the Tax Foundation back when you worked with the Tax Foundation, spent a lot of time revenue scoring. There's like very scientific and precise. There's a lot of assumptions, but it's like a lot of effort goes into trying to do this very scientifically. What I think Karl Popper would tell us is if it's not um, if it's not refutable, if you can't actually provide evidence that what you're showing was wrong, uh, then it's not science. So if you can't actually go in and say, the estimate was wrong. Is there, would that fail to meet the definition of science? I mean, I guess what's the point of having an estimate if you can't ever know it was right? Falsifiability. There's no falsifiability for these revenue projections because you just, I mean, like you say, I agree. It's really hard to know ex post whether it worked. Yeah, I, I look to some extent, I agree with that, that um, you, you can't, you can't really pinpoint exactly what the revenue effect of that corporate tax cut was because all sorts of things changed at the same time. There may have been behavioral effects that no one really considered, or maybe companies for whatever reason didn't behave the way we thought they were going to behave. Um, But on the other hand, I think lawmakers do need to make decisions, um, inform decisions about, about policy changes. And that I think scoring you know, does have a very important place there that you do want well, to know. How can you know? I mean, it's, it's useful to have information if it's correct. And you literally just said, oh, you can't know if it's correct or not. So what's the difference between the score and just like some random number? Well, so a, so a random number would be just made up. Now, I, I think that scoring is a lot better than just being made up. Um, I mean, you, you know from observing how much the corporate tax raises right now. So you know, so you know um, that a reduction in the corporate tax is going to change revenue to some, in, in some way. Um, and I think just a straight static score, for example, is useful because it gives you, it gives you an idea of your rel- a relative magnitude. Um, so another way to put this is that if you, you have multiple policies that you could enact, you might want to rank them in some order of importance. Um, and one way that you could rank them is, is to rank them both in how much you think that they're going to reduce revenue or how much they're going to cost and how much you think that they could potentially um, impact the economy. And I think a lot of these models, although they produce slightly different answers here and there, they may all rank them roughly the same way. And that, that I think, is an important piece of information. Um, and I don't think those rankings, for example, are entirely random. Um, I think that there's a lot of um, data that goes into that and also some economic um, theory that, go, that is behind that, even if the exact numbers are not, um, are, are not precise. Here's kind of a fascinating thing. I've seen these charts floating around on Twitter and in various reports and so forth. Um, it's always kind of hard to know how to gauge how much corporate tax is collected, right, or any other kind of tax. But one measure that's commonly used is let's take the ratio of corporate tax relative to GDP, right? And um, one might imagine um, 
if the corporate tax rate goes down a lot, then the fraction of corporate tax relative to the total amount of goods and services produced in the economy, the GDP, might also go down. And it turns out if you look at that graph over time in the U.S., at least from what I've seen, I think it hasn't really actually gone down all that much since 2017. Maybe a little bit, but it's kind of about the same. Does that surprise you? Yeah. Somewhat. And this is something I've been interested in for a while because it's also a pattern that you see overseas as well, Um, that over the last 20 years, a lot of countries have reduced their corporate income taxes. Um, And and, but we've seen in the OECD, for example, that corporate tax revenue as a percent of GDP has remained stable. Some countries it's even gone up. and I, I think that there may be multiple answers to, to this, like why this this may occur. Um, and some of it may be applicable to the United States. Some of it may not. Um, the first place I would check, of course, is if a country cut their corporate tax, what other things did they do to their corporate tax at the same time? Um, the United Kingdom, for example, is famous for this, that they've cut their corporate income tax drastically over the last 15 years, but at the same time, they've brought in the corporate tax base drastically. For example, the tax treatment of capital investments um, has gotten worse in the United Kingdom, meaning that they are they are stretching asset lives out longer and longer in order to pay for the lower corporate rate. So even though the statutory rate has come down, the effective rate, especially on industrial buildings, has actually gone up in the United Kingdom. Mm. Um, so there, there's, there's that. The second is kind of a behavioral effect that um, I mentioned this earlier that Corporations are not the only type of entity that exists in the United States, and it's not the only type of entity that exists throughout the world. There are non-corporate entities that pay the individual income tax, um, and that when you cut the corporate tax but leave everything else the same, what you can do is create an incentive for companies and taxpayers to reorganize their affairs so that instead of paying taxes as a non-corporate entity, they pay taxes as a corporate entity. And although that that means that you cut the corporate tax, existing corporations pay less, but new corporations went from paying no corporate tax to paying some positive amount of corporate tax, and that can that can push up corporate tax collections as a percent of GDP. But you have to look over at the individual income tax collections to see what's really going on there. Um, so so there's a, there, there could those are just two examples, but there's a lot that could be going on there. So it's we have to be careful about looking at that that information and making too strong of a uh, case one way or the other. Yeah, very interesting. Okay, so we're quickly running out of time. So last question. All right, let's anoint you King Kyle, and you are king, and you can adjust the TCJA in whatever way you see fit to make it better. Make it retroactive. You can travel back in time. Yeah, you can do whatever you want. What would you do? All right. So, so there are a couple things. I think the the first one and the biggest one is that I would have made the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act provisions permanent. I think one of the biggest weaknesses of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act is that it was largely temporary. Uh, now, I understand why politically that had to happen. The Republicans didn't have a lot of votes to spare. And they needed to put in a lot of policies um, in order to um, get the votes that they needed. 
and as a result it ended up being a tax cut that needed to be passed through reconciliation, therefore it needed to be temporary, but that is not good policy, um, and that I think that the TCGA should have been permanent, whatever you think of the policies themselves. Um, but that, that includes the individual provisions, that includes the business tax provisions. Oh, is that, is, that a, is that a blanket statement? Do you think we just shouldn't ever pass temporary tax policy? Unless, I mean, I guess if it's to solve some temporary problem, maybe. But in general, we should just have a permanent tax code? Yeah, so I, I, I think that there are ways, there are... Um, I think you can deviate from this principle in some some cases. I mean, the COVID pandemic was a very good um, example of where deviation is totally reasonable. But if you're going to if you, you think about what the tax code is for, it's for raising revenue for go government priorities, and you want to do that in a way that's least distortive as possible. I mean, one way you can do to reduce distortions in the tax code is by making sure that taxpayers know what the tax code is going to be year after year with some amount of certainty. Um, and for business provisions, for example, this is very important because investments are forward-looking activities. You're not doing an investment in 2023 only for 2023. You're looking ahead maybe a decade into the future and trying to figure out what you know the cash flows of that investment are going to be and what the taxes are going to be on that. Um, so some amount of stability is important. Having a big fiscal cliff in 2025 I don't think is conducive for um, uh, uh, investment decisions. Um, and then maybe to plug some of my research or some of my writing, I think, um, you know, some of the specific policies that I think should be different in the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, I, I think I'll take one on the on the corporate side and one on the individual side. I think on the, on the corporate side, um, I think that um, I think they should have moved more towards a cash flow tax. They may not have been able to get the destination based part of it and they just wasn't the votes. But I think they could have done more on the expensing and limiting the interest deductions portion of it. Um, and I actually think that it's you know, it's sad that the debate right now is moving towards kind of undoing some of that. They're having trouble right now keeping expensing for R&D. It's unclear what they're going to do with bonus depreciation. And it looks like lawmakers might try to unwind some of the interest deduction limitations. And I, I would keep the expensing and keep the interest deduction limitations the way they are, or even strengthen them from there. Um, and then on the individual side, I think um, I, I would do away with Section 199 Cap A. Um, I think there are a whole lot of policies that would have been better um, to address this issue the, of having a significant pass-through business sector. And I, I think 199 Cap A has a lot of weaknesses um, and, and I think ultimately it needs to be replaced with, um, something far, far more reasonable. And, and for those of us who don't remember the tax laws in code numbers, what is 199 cap A? Yeah. 199 cap A, that is the 20% deduction for pass through business income. So if you're an individual, um, sole proprietor, you're an owner of a partnership, um, or an S corporation, you can deduct, um, with some limitations, 20% of your uh, your net business income against your taxable income. So in effect, it reduces the top statutory tax rate on pass-through business income from 37% under the TCJA to 29.6%. Um, and this creates a, a tax differential 
between pass-through business income and wage uh, wage income that didn't exist under the individual income tax. And there's a debate over this, but I also think it creates a, a larger tax benefit for pass-through businesses over corporations um, as well. So the tax code, in a way, is tilted in favor of pass-through businesses. And ideally, you'd want all of this to be neutral. You want all these activities to be, be traded roughly the same. Well, you may be surprised to learn, Kyle, that I once sang a song which included the phrase, claim QBI deductions, which QBI is uh, what, what you're talking qualified business uh, investment or, what, or qualified business income deductions. And, um, and that is uh, what is called a tax tune, which if you're interested in listening to this podcast, you can go search for tax tunes. And one of them was called, what was it called, Jeff? Do you remember? I don't remember. But one of them in one of the tax tunes, we talk about claiming QBI deductions. It's a beautifully sung song. By yours truly, Scott Dyring. Um, so that's interesting, and I appreciate you um, giving us your suggestions. Obviously, it sounds like you have even more than that, but we're quickly running out of time, so we better uh, we better we better pause pause at that point. Kyle, thank you so much for joining us. Your perspective is is fascinating, and uh, we appreciate you coming on to give it to us. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. All right. Well, as always, I'm Scott Dyring, professor of accounting at Duke University, your host, and I'm joined by my co-host and friend at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, Jeff Hoops. Our guest today has been Kyle Pomerlow, who is senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Thank you for listening. We'll chat with you next time. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.